0: Well, good morning again. (coughs) Today uh, we are going to begin a study through the book of Acts. and uh, The books of of Luke and Acts, the Gospel of Luke and the the Acts of the Apostles, really make up one book. Um, It's kind of like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know, it's it's not really three books, but uh, one book in three parts. That's Luke-Acts. One book, two parts. And uh, we're going to begin this morning with an overview of the book of Acts. We're going to um, sort of look at the book as a whole. It's 28 chapters at five minutes per chapter. That's, I don't know. Uh, you do the math. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so we're going to read. No, really. We're, uh, we are, are going to do an overview. It's not going to take two hours and 20 minutes or whatever. Um, but uh, we're, we're going to read a few verses out of the prologues of both Luke and Acts, Um, to sort of get us into the book. And uh, so we're going to read from Luke uh, 1 and then Acts 1, but before we do that, let me pray for us again. Our Father, we come before you because we recognize that we need you, uh, that apart from you we can do nothing, uh, that our hearts by nature, because of sin in the world, are hard and closed off to your word. So we come praying, Father, that you would send your spirit into our hearts, that you would open our hearts, that you would soften our hearts, that you would enable us to to hear your word, to receive your word, to believe your word, to walk in light of your word. Father, we pray that you would glorify your son, Jesus, this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, the first four verses. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And then part two of Luke's book begins like this, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is not about changing dirty diapers. The book of Acts is, is not about long, grueling hours at a boring job. It's not about papers and exams and grades. And so you might begin to wonder, okay, therefore, is the book of Acts relevant? Does it speak to where we live each day? And of course, I could give you a platitude and say, well, God's Word is always relevant, and that would be true but maybe not so helpful. And so as we begin studying together the book of Acts, I want to start by having some understanding of why this book is is relevant, how God's Word is relevant to our lives day by day. Uh, We'll see this hopefully more as we go on this morning. Uh, Certainly we'll see it more in the weeks to come as we study God's Word together. Uh, But I want to say a couple of things to start. Why do we get so frustrated when our plans are thwarted? You know, you're on your way to work and you you get into traffic, you get cut off, you get angry, you start saying things, you're glad that no one is there recording it so they can replay it on Sunday morning, you have small children. And it seems like they have planned their morning of mischief specifically to undo your morning of productivity. You know, everything they do is like this surgical strike intended to counter your valiant efforts to maintain order in your home. And you end up weary and tired and depressed. Or your teachers consistently overlook your brilliance. They just don't see genius when it stares them in the face, and your grades reflect their poor judgment, and you end up bitter and angry about being undervalued and overlooked. What do all these things have in common? We consistently live for our own kingdom. We live for our own glory. We, we are living as if we were the sovereign. We were the king. We say to those around us, maybe not out loud, but in our hearts and minds, my will be done. And when our will is not done, that reminds us that, that we are not sovereign, that we are not all glorious, that our kingdom is really no bigger than our own imaginations. There's no one bowing down to us. Not our kids, not our boss, not our teachers. And we get frustrated, we get angry, we get depressed, we get bitter. We live day to day in what is often sort of the, the suffocating little kingdom of me. A kingdom so easily shaken, because really, I mean, think about it. How easy is it to prove that I am not sovereign, that I'm not in control of my life? How easy is it to prove that I am not all-glorious, that I'm not worthy of your adoration and praise? And that means my little kingdom is really a kingdom of fear, because at any moment I might be dethroned. You might see me for what I really am, not a king, but a frog. Well, enter the book of Acts. The book of Acts, and really all of Scripture, is meant to give us perspective. It lifts us up sort of out of the mundane to give us a larger view of life. It lifts us out of the, the suffocating confines of the kingdom of me and gives us a view of a bigger kingdom, a better kingdom, a more glorious kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus. And the book of Acts is meant to give us not only perspective, but also a sense of, of purpose. I mean, if you are a Christian, you are a member of that kingdom. It's not something you, you look on from the outside. It's something that you are a part of. It's your story. Okay, it's Jesus' story, but you're in Jesus' story. You have a purpose, then, in this life. Your, your purpose is to bear witness to Jesus' kingdom. To Jesus' person, to Jesus' work. It's to use your gifts, whatever they might be, for the upbuilding, not of your own kingdom, but of His kingdom. Now, that doesn't remove all those frustrations we mentioned earlier, but it allows us to see them differently. It gives them purpose because in the way we respond to suffering, The way we respond, the way we live in the midst of the the frustrations and the trials of life bears witness to this bigger and better and more glorious kingdom. And Scripture is is reorienting us away from the, the fading glories of our own kingdom toward the unfading glory of the kingdom of Jesus. So that our eyes are set there. Acts is about the kingdom of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 says, uh, Jesus appears to his disciples and we're told that during 40 days after his resurrection, before his ascension, during 40 days, he was speaking about the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus did with his disciples for 40 days after his resurrection. Spoke about the kingdom of God. Acts chapter 8, verse 12, Philip Goes about and he preached good news, the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Those two things, the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Repeatedly in Acts, Paul proclaims and persuades and testifies about the kingdom of God. And we find that the, the very final verse of Acts, we find Paul proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Acts is meant to help us understand the reign of King Jesus. How Jesus is now and will in the future rule in the world. Jesus is king. He he is ruling and he will rule forever. And Acts tells us some things about his kingdom. About the way he rules in the world. We're going to look at just a couple of those this morning. You can see uh, on the back of your bulletin, there's an outline. Uh, There are five things uh, that we're going to look at there, five things about Jesus' kingdom. And there's a lot more we could say. Again, this is just an introduction to to the book of Acts to get us thinking a little bit, a theological introduction, right? What what is the book of Acts about? And uh, obviously, as we go week after week, we'll delve more into each of these things. So we're going to look at five things. We're going to look at kingdom foundations, uh, kingdom power, kingdom mission, kingdom community, and kingdom opposition. First, kingdom foundations. Um, The book of Acts is about the Messiah, Jesus, as he lays the foundation of his kingdom. What does that mean? Well, well, Jesus uh, came into the world uh, he lived, he died, he rose. We just confessed all of those things in the Apostles' Creed. But at that point, after Jesus rose from the dead, there was this really ragtag band of 11 disciples, a few women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And what Acts records is how Jesus takes this motley crew and turns it into the foundation of a worldwide movement. <coughs> And I use the word foundation for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, that's actually the word Paul uses at a couple points uh, in his letters. First Corinthians chapter 3, he says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And he says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then in Ephesians 2, he says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. See, there is something unique about the work of the apostles. There is a work that they did which cannot be redone. Acts records some of that, the work of the apostles laying the foundation of the church. But that really brings us to another reason to use this word foundation. Uh, The foundation of a house gives shape to that house, but it's distinct from the house. Uh, The foundation is not the same as your living room or your bedroom. You You don't live in the foundation of your house. You live on it, but not in it. And Acts records the, the, the foundation laying of the church, the foundation laying of the kingdom of Jesus. Now, sometimes people come to the book of Acts and we assume that everything in Acts is normative. Right? We, we assume that everything in Acts, everything is given to be imitated. Like if they did it in Acts, then we're supposed to do it today. It's, it's a kind of nostalgic view of the book of Acts, right? To, to get back to what the early church was really like. And, and, of course, it's good to want to return to Scripture, but not everything in Acts is meant to be imitated. Some stuff in Acts were, are, are historical events that are unique or were unique to that time in the life of the church. Uh, so think about it, some stories in the Bible set patterns we are to follow and others do not, right? Uh, creation comes to mind. It's kind of a one-time thing. Uh, The Red Sea Crossing, right? A historical event. Jesus died on the cross once for all. These events, creation, the Red Sea, the cross, they have historical or they have ongoing relevance, but they are not examples to be imitated. Okay, the cross sets a kind of pattern, doesn't it? But it's not simple imitation. In fact, uh, I heard recently of a cult that literally carries large, heavy crosses around. People, the people in this cult, literally carry large, heavy crosses around, and they teach that if you don't do that, you're not really a Christian. Because, of course, Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. Well, not everything that happens in a narrative is to set a pattern for us. And, of course, in that example, Jesus even tells us to imitate him, but we instinctively know that's not exactly what Jesus meant. And so we have to be discerning what in Acts is a part of the foundation laying of the church, something that is unrepeatable, something uh, to build on, and what is showing us how that foundation shapes our life today. And Of course, we, we, we have to constantly ask, those questions, because really it's always a both and, right? I mean, there, there's always a foundation being laid in the book of Acts. We're seeing the beginnings of the early church, and that shapes the way we live today. We have to be discerning and thoughtful about how we connect those two things. So what is Acts about? Acts is about the Messiah, Jesus, as he lays the foundation of his kingdom. A foundation laying work. We, we, we don't always imitate, but we must always live in light of. Second, and more briefly, let's talk about kingdom power. That's kingdom foundations, not kingdom power. Um, I don't know about you, but one of my biggest struggles is with self-reliance. And self-reliance, you... if you thought about it a little bit, it either leads to boasting, you know, look what I did. Look at how great I am. Or it leads more often, if we're honest with ourselves, it leads to fear and despair. Right? I don't have what it takes. I don't think I can do it. I'm not so sure that I can make it through this. This is especially true when it comes to sharing the gospel. You know, I feel like Uh, I have to have all the answers before I talk to someone about Jesus. I have to know exactly what to say before I enter into the conversation. Which means I have to read their minds to know how they're going to respond so I can know how to respond to the way they respond to what I say. Which is pretty difficult. Which also means that that I'm afraid when I feel inadequately prepared most of the time. And I move forward only when I feel in control of, of the conversation, which I rarely am, which means I continually lack boldness because I don't know how it's all going to work out. I don't know what's going to happen. <clears throat> now, learning and study are good as far as they go. I believe strongly in studying the Bible and studying theology But we too often rely on those things rather than relying on Jesus. And in Acts, we see, though, that Jesus' program for the church is actually not powered by learning and education, as much as I love those things. Peter and John are brought before the Jewish council in Acts chapter 4 and we're told that when the council saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. What gave Peter and John such boldness? What what enabled them to stand up and open their mouths and start talking even though they hadn't been, been studying theology for four years in seminary? Or 20 years in whatever. Now, it's true that they did study for three years with Jesus. You would think, well, that's something, right? <laughs> I mean, they were with Jesus. They, they even had a 40-day crash course on the kingdom post-resurrection. That's pretty good. And yet, even after their three years with Jesus, they, they, they stood cowering in the upper room after the death of Jesus. No boldness there. What is it that gave them boldness? It's the Spirit who emboldens them to bear witness to the, to the risen Jesus. It's not until they receive the Spirit that they begin to speak about what they've seen and heard. Jesus himself supplies the strength necessary to bear witness to his saving work. In Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit comes to empower God's people, particularly to empower and embolden them for the mission of the church. Repeatedly, as we read through the book of Acts, we will see the Holy Spirit fill Peter and Paul. And when he does, they will stand up and open their mouths and speak about the grace of God. Sometimes I I wonder, you know, what what would happen if the Holy Spirit got a hold of our hearts the way he did Peter and Paul? What would happen if he empowered us and emboldened us to speak freely and openly about the grace of Jesus? Wherever we are, in whatever context we find ourselves, right, in our families, in our neighborhoods, in in our schools, what if we just started talking to people about Jesus. I'm not so sure uh, what God would do if we were emboldened in that way, but I'm certainly praying that we'll find out as we study through the book of Acts. Uh, Luke mentions the Spirit's work. In fact, so often, some have suggested that this book should be called not the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Spirit. And there's a degree of truth in that. Uh, But... Even that kind of misunderstands the Spirit's role. The Spirit was sent on behalf of Christ. Jesus sent the Spirit when he rose from the dead, ascended to the Father. The Father gave him the Spirit, and he poured out the Spirit on the church. And so it would be better, even better, to call uh, this book The Acts of the Risen Jesus Through His Spirit Empowering and Emboldening His Apostles. But that's too long of a title, so the Acts of the Apostles will have to work. Empowering and emboldening, that's what Jesus is doing through the Spirit. Empowering and emboldening the apostles to fulfill their mission. Well, what is that mission? That brings us to the third point, the kingdom mission. You know, uh, sometimes I don't, if you read books about the mission of the church, or if you read what the church is supposed to be doing in the world, uh, the mission of the church is, is a little bit up for grabs today. Um, you know, what are we doing here? Why are we doing it? Uh, is our mission confined to Sunday mornings? Does it have implications Monday through Saturday? Is it exclusively about evangelism? Is it, does it include doing good works, right? What is, the, what is the mission of the church? What is our focus as God's community? Well, the mission of the church seen in Acts really begins with the apostles, doesn't it? I mean, the, the apostles uh, do play a unique role in this book. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, there is a sense in which all Christians are called to bear witness to Jesus. But, in another sense, this is a unique role of the apostles. You may notice in Acts chapter 1, there's a replacement of Judas So that there would be a 12th apostle who would become with the 11 a witness to the resurrection. That's why they replaced Judas, so that a 12th person would become with the 11 a witness to the resurrection. And by witness here and elsewhere in Acts, it means eyewitness, an eyewitness to the resurrection. How is the foundation of Jesus' kingdom laid? By the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. Now, that is something that you and I cannot give. We can't give it because we weren't there. We didn't see the risen Jesus. He didn't teach us for 40 days after his resurrection. And part of the apostolic witness is is not prescriptive for us, but descriptive of a once-for-all work of laying the, the foundation of the church. These men saw Jesus risen from the dead, And they bore witness to that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That was the apostles' mission, to bear witness to what they saw. And we believe based at least in part on their eyewitness testimony. That's what we have in the New Testament, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. If we didn't have that, their eyewitness testimony, we wouldn't believe. What that means, actually, is that Acts 1-8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Acts 1-8 is actually fulfilled by Acts chapter 28. See, we we often turn Acts 1-8 into a paradigm, right? We ask, uh, what's your Jerusalem? What's your Judea? What's your ends of the earth? There's, There's some truthfulness to that, but... We mustn't skip over the fact that this command of Jesus, first and foremost, was about the eyewitness apostolic testimony, laying the foundation of the kingdom, a foundation which has been laid and is now complete. Now, that doesn't mean that missions is over. To the contrary, it means that the foundation for missions has been laid. We don't repeat the apostolic eyewitness testimony we, we weren't there. We can't say we saw the risen Jesus after his death and resurrection. We don't repeat the apostolic eyewitness testimony, but we can stand on it and proclaim it to others. And, and so it's interesting, actually, the verb to witness in the, the book of Acts is used exclusively of, well, of God, of the Spirit, and of the apostles. But while that verb to witness is used only, in terms of human beings, of the apostles, uh, there are lots of other words used to talk about the ongoing mission of the church. And so Stephen speaks powerfully about Jesus from the Old Testament. Those who are scattered in the persecution preach the word. Philip proclaims Christ and preaches the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus. Barnabas and Saul proclaim the word of God. Apollos spoke and taught accurately the things of Jesus, speaking boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila explained to Apollos uh, the way of God more accurately. And and you get the point. Just because not everyone are eyewitnesses like the apostles were, that doesn't mean that they can't go, that we can't go and relay the gospel message. Evangelism happens in Acts as disciples proclaim the gospel, the word of God, the good news of the kingdom, and the teaching of Jesus. And we'll look at that teaching uh, throughout the book of Acts as we study it, Uh, but there are things, you know, as as we read through Acts, there are things in Acts that are not meant to be imitated, uh, but certainly, as we see repeated again and again this apostolic message in the sermons, Certainly, the the way people preach should be. We're we're hearing the gospel from them. That's the gospel that we proclaim. But a couple of things strike us as we we go through Acts. A couple of things are are going to strike us as we read through their sermons. Here's the gospel as we hear it in Acts. It actually follows a pretty consistent pattern uh, from sermon to sermon. Jesus was rejected by men, but raised by the power of God. Therefore God has made him Lord and Christ and judge. We, the apostles, are eyewitnesses of these things. Repent and believe in him, for all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name and will receive the Holy Spirit. That's a summary of the the gospel as preached in Acts. We'll see that again and again and again. Now, uh, notice, though, notice, think about that. This book, which records the initial spread of the gospel... Which describes the foundation laying of the church, a- as we listen, as we listen in on the gospel that Peter and Paul preached, two things are conspicuously absent. Now by being absent, that doesn't mean they aren't true. We find them elsewhere in the Bible, but it, it does mean uh, that as we think about sharing the gospel, right, we can share the gospel without these things that I'm going to mention, without them being the core of your message. And it's going to make you a little bit uncomfortable. You know, what do we normally emphasize when we think about sharing the gospel? Some people emphasize, uh, on the one hand, the love of God for sinful people. Others emphasize the the blood of Jesus and the details of his atoning work. And yet those are the very things that are, are missing in Acts. Notice, as we read through Acts, no one in Acts, as the gospel is preached from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth to Rome, no one in Acts mentions the love of God. Not specifically, not explicitly. Um, When Luke boils down Paul's preaching into a few sentences, the love of God never makes the cut. Now, I know you didn't expect to hear me say that this morning, and I'm not even entirely sure what to make of it, Yet, it obviously doesn't mean that God doesn't love us. We have, you know, 65 other books in the Bible. Um, Many other Bible passages tell us that God loves his people, that Jesus comes from the love of God. John 3.16 comes to mind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But the focus of Peter and Paul is not about a characteristic of God, his love, But on God's actions in history and the implications of those actions for us today. A second thing is missing, and that is any kind of complicated theory of the atonement. Jesus died and now offers forgiveness. That's what we hear again and again. He died, He rose, He offers forgiveness. Other passages of Scripture give us details about that atonement, certainly, uh, that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, uh, that Jesus was made sin for us, that Jesus became a curse on our behalf. But when Luke summarizes Paul's preaching, those details are lost. And the simple historical events remain Jesus died and Jesus rose. And those events mean something, that he is now Lord and Christ, and he offers you his royal pardon. That's the the kingdom mission, to proclaim the risen Christ, to to tell what God has done in history and what that means for us today. Fourth, kingdom community. When we look at the, the community or the church in the book of Acts, three things stand out. Um, The the makeup of this community, the leadership in this community, and the fellowship of this community. And uh, okay, this is just an introduction. I'm just gonna touch on these things briefly, but uh, they're all important as we read through Acts. First, the makeup of the community. Acts is about ethnicity in Christ's kingdom. In fact, that's actually at the front of the the book of Acts. it's about the inclusion of the Gentiles in what for 2,000 years had been a predominantly Jewish enterprise. In fact, the program set in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 is as much about ethnicity as it is about geography. So the, the Jews lived in Jerusalem and Judea, the Samaritans, half-Jews, lived in Samaria, and then the Gentiles lived at the ends of the earth. So the march of the gospel to the end of the earth is a march to every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not just a geographic march, but an ethnic one. And what we will see is that many of the early conflicts in in the church, many of the early conflicts in the book of Acts are as much about ethnicity and culture as they are about anything else. Some things, I guess, never change. And here's the point. From the beginning, the church had to work hard to include people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It didn't come naturally. It was never easy, and yet it was always a goal. And it was a goal because Jesus made it a goal. When he appeared to Peter again and again, when he appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he's constantly telling these men that they're gonna go to the Gentiles, that they're gonna break with everything that that meant something to them as Jewish men, And they're going to go to unclean people and share his gospel. See, what unites us must be ultimately faith in Christ, not culture, not ethnicity. Uh, and, And what that means is what divides us must not be culture or ethnicity, but whether or not we bow our knee to the risen King Jesus. The kingdom is the risen Jesus kingdom, It's not an American kingdom, it's not a a male kingdom or a female kingdom, it's not a white kingdom or a black kingdom, it's not a white-collar kingdom or a blue-collar kingdom, it's not an educated kingdom or a kingdom for the common man, right? The kingdom is the kingdom of the risen Jesus, and all who repent and believe in him may enter. Well, that's the makeup of this community we're going to see as we work through acts. What about the leadership, leadership in this community? How is this kingdom organized? What we're going to see as we read through Acts is we're going to see a transition, a transition of leadership from the apostles to the elders, a transition that's subtle but important as you read through, as Acts sort of connects for us uh, the life of of Jesus in the Gospels to the letters of Paul. This transition is important. Uh, Acts begins with a church of 120 people pastored by 12 apostles. That, by the way, is is one pastor for each 10 people, which is a pretty good ratio. Uh, While Judas is replaced to complete that number, the number 12 uh, in Acts chapter 1, Judas is replaced, so there's still 12 apostles. Uh, James is not replaced when he dies in chapter 12. They don't keep replacing the apostles as they die off. Why not? Well, again, the apostles, the apostolic eyewitness testimony was not meant to last from generation to generation. The apostles lead the church for a limited time only. And as Paul's missionary journeys continue, he begins to appoint not apostles, but elders in every church. And when we get to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, the apostles and the elders gather together as a kind of church court to oversee the church at large. And then by the time we get to Acts 20, Paul gives specific instructions to the Ephesian elders as a kind of farewell address before Paul begins his final missionary journey in chains from Jerusalem to Rome, to the end of the earth. And what's the point? What we see in Acts is a transition uh, in leadership of the early church. It's a necessary transition because the apostles aren't going to live forever, and they can't be replaced indefinitely because uh, the eyewitness testimony was only possible in that first-generation church, right? So you can't just keep replacing the apostles on and on forever. Besides, their mission, as we've said, is uh, accomplished by Acts 28. They reached the ends of the earth with their eyewitness testimony. The gospel has crossed over from Jew to Gentile. The foundation of the church has been laid. So the apostolic mission is complete, and the mission of elders in leading leading the church begins. So that's the makeup of the community, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew and Gentile. Leadership in the community, we're gonna see moves from the apostles uh, to the elders by the end of the book. What about fellowship in the community? You know, this is one of the the most, I think, nostalgic parts of Acts for people. Um, we, we, We long for intimacy, right? And and, and most of us know what it's like to feel disconnected from others, uh, to feel not known or to feel overlooked. When we read about breaking of bread in people's homes in the Book of Acts, there is is, when we read about no one calling anything his own but giving to anyone as any had need, it, it stirs something inside of us. We want that kind of intimacy. We want that kind of connection with people, and I think what's most frustrating is—is is for all of us, right? We, we most of us want it, uh, but but there are hurdles to it. We we start. We have excuses. We have reasons why. Well, you know, we, we can't have that kind of intimacy. We want it, yet it scares us because we realize how costly it is. And I, I think as we read through Acts, we'll wrestle with that. What again? Um, You know, what what is simply being described in the early church and what is prescriptive for us? At the very least, of course, we need one another. We see that from all of Scripture, which means we, we need to know one another to some degree. Some level of intimacy is necessary, which means each of us must put ourselves in a position to be known and to know others. How do we do that? What does that look like? How how do we work the details of that out in the the life of the church? We're going to wrestle through that, through the hard work of living as the community of God's people as we read through the book of Acts. What does that look like? What does that mean? How do we live that out practically? All right, we've talked about A lot of things. We've talked about the the foundation, kingdom foundation, kingdom power in the gift of the Spirit, the kingdom mission, proclaiming the risen Christ, the kingdom community. Uh, And the last thing we want to talk about is is what stands in the kingdom's way, kingdom opposition. You know, every worthy endeavor faces obstacles. Your lives are not problem-free, right? Everything doesn't always go your way all the time. Luke records lots of opposition to Jesus' kingdom in the book of Acts. The religious leaders in Israel, uh, to a lesser degree, the political leaders throughout the Roman world, um, those who make their living by, by magic in the book of Acts, and metalsmithing, both sorcerers and idolaters. What holds all of these people in common? Well, all of them have some power over others. And the coming of Jesus' kingdom takes away that power. As the good news of grace and and forgiveness moves forward, those who hold power over others by, by legalism and guilt lose their hold. As the power of Christ is proclaimed over all other powers, those who hold power over others by holding them in awe and wonder lose that hold. As one true God, the one true God is proclaimed in Jesus as His risen Son and Judge, Those who hold power over others through keeping them captive to idols of silver and gold lose that hold. When we have something to lose, we tend to fight back. And here's the question for us as we read through, what do you have to lose? What might you even fight Jesus for? You know, maybe it's your reputation as an excellent student or a hard worker or a good dad. Uh, Maybe it's your own pleasure or your own comfort or ease or carefree life. Maybe it's control. You like things going your way. You don't want the world, your world, to be shaken up by Jesus. Well, Jesus is the risen Lord. He has overcome death. His gospel is unstoppable. That's what we see in the book of Acts. And so you really have two options, right? You can fight against Him and ultimately lose, or you can believe in Him and find forgiveness and new life in His Spirit. I pray that as we study through the book of Acts, we will all do that. We will turn to Him. We will trust in Him. We will find forgiveness of sins in His name, and we will be filled with His Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray Come to you again because we know that we need you. We, we recognize that uh, there is so much we have to learn uh, that uh, even as we begin to think about the book of Acts, we have so many questions that are unanswered. We pray, Father, that as we read and as we study, that you would answer our questions, not just to satisfy our curiosity, but so that we might be more fully conformed to your truth, that your truth would have its way with us That we would be transformed into the image of Jesus. That we would represent you in the world as we speak of your grace and as we love our neighbors. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.